In the afternoon, I went for a walk with the dog, um, and that's when I could, in the distance, see uh, some smoke and um, was curious but not alarmed at the time. Um, but whilst I was out walking, I received a phone call from my dad, um, you know, asking me if, if I could see the smoke and where was I and what was I doing. Uh, he's a bus driver on the Sunshine Coast, so he drives up and down the coast a lot. So he sees what's going on and he's radioing often to other bus drivers about what's going on. Um, so I think he was maybe a little bit more aware of the severity of the situation. What did your dad say when he called? Where are you? Where's your brother? Why aren't you at home? Go home, walk home, you know, just a... He's always a, a little bit more... Not a worrier, but he he likes to, to know what's going on and to, to make sure everything's OK. I remember this day. It was September 2019. I've got friends who live on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, so I made a point of watching this on the news. Gabby Barnett, who's telling this story, had just moved back to her childhood home after a stint overseas. She cut her walk short after the call from her dad. So we just started packing some bags for each of us, you know, pyjamas, toothbrush, um, just in case, and started loading the photo albums into the car um, and birth certificates and laptops. So that's Gabby. I'm Stephen Stockwell. And you're listening to Doom Scroll Remedy, where we meet the people living through the existential threats that keep us up at night and the people who are trying to solve them. In this series, we're diving into direct threats to how we live, like bushfires, and some things that are a little harder to pin down. Not with the goal of fixing them, we're not wizards, but we hope we can slow down enough to understand all of these big problems swirling through our feeds. Bushfires have gone from being a natural part of the Australian landscape to wild and deadly disasters. And in this episode, we'll find out how University of Queensland researchers are making them more predictable. They've got plenty to work with too. At the end of 2019 and the start of 2020, the east coast of Australia lit up. I was living in Sydney at the time and it felt like smoke blanketed the city for months. Everything was red. I was brushing ash off my clothes hanging on the hill's hoist just 10 kilometres from the CBD. And that deadly fire season actually began further north, in Queensland, Bridgian to be exact, a little holiday town on the beach. Uh, we've always lived in Pridgeon and it's changed a lot in that time. Um, back in the day, Pridgeon was a very sleepy little town. Now it's a little bit more upmarket, which is strange for us, but um, but nice. We've spent our whole lives like living where we are and it's a little bit more in the bush than, say, in town, which is quite lovely, but we've always been very connected to to town as well. My mum used to have a shop there, so we caught the school bus there every day. So I have a deep connection to Bridgian. What's the house like? Well, I love it. Uh, it's almost like a big U-shaped house um, with a big deck. There are lots and lots of gum trees, um, which in turn means we get lots of beautiful birds, lots of rainbow lorikeets, uh, kangaroos. Um, we have a lovely garden that my dad maintains. Uh, he spends almost all his time outside of the house when he's not working. Did you have a bushfire plant? As a family, we have always had a plan of attack that if there was a bushfire or any reason to evacuate, I suppose, we knew exactly what we would be going for. Um, we have a large cabinet with every photo album ever for our family that we knew to go directly to. And actually, my mum had a few years ago organised that better. 
she'd put it more into boxes and done that in a way that it would be easier to get up and go quickly. Um, and we've always known to go for this very old briefcase of my dad's. It would be over 30 years old that has every birth certificate and passport in it. But that's about the extent of our planning. So take us back to when you got home from that walk. Did your family have to evacuate? Where did you go? Thankfully, we have um, good family friends who now don't live in Pridgen, but previously had. And so we're very similarly attached to the situation and keeping um, a close eye on things. So we went up to their house in Noosa um, where we just sat around and listened to the news and had the radio on um, and kept abreast of the situation. Everyone was up early the next day, but the good news was they knew the house was okay and they were able to go home. A few hours later, though, everything felt different. There was quite strong winds, um, which was a bit alarming. Um, And it certainly, despite being a sunny day, it wasn't a nice one. It wasn't clear skies and nice sunshine. It was hot and smoky and a bit more oppressive. And so we could now see far in the distance more of an orange glow, um, more of the flames um, and certainly much darker smoke as well. Um, You could smell it and so that sometimes filters then from your nose into your mouth and I mean it felt quite serious. It it did the first time but this time we knew that the fire was much closer uh, and by then we had heard a lot more of the news. We could see that they had the um, the large aerial tanker, so the plane that flies over and drops water. Um, so you knew it was much more serious by now and that they hadn't been able to get a, con- um, a hold on the situation and on the fire. So it just seemed that this time was a bit more serious than the day prior. They were able to have a bit of a wander around the house, but you can tell by how Gabby describes the weather that the threat was still there. They didn't bother unpacking the car. It was only a few hours before they were told they'd need to leave again. Even though we've been aware of bushfires before, this was certainly the the first time that it had been so serious. Um, and it was worrying, but you felt comforted by the fact that we were all together as a family, um, even though we love that home immensely you felt that that it was going to be okay even if it wasn't there anymore. What was it like that night, staying with your family, friends? Yeah, we were glued to the news um, because by then there was a lot of reports that Pridgen Town was engulfed in flames and that the petrol station had blown up, that the Pridgen Beach Hotel, the, the local pub, was no longer there, the IGA was burnt, um, None of this turned out to be true, but this was what, you know, people were messaging on Facebook or um, there were some people who were perhaps a bit closer to the scene who had put some very alarming videos up which showed the fire um, blazing around the town. Through the night, more than 100 fire crews worked to contain the fire and the next morning, Gabby and her family were able to head home. The drive back was a bit weird though. The route itself was not affected, so everything looks the same, um, thankfully. Uh, And it wasn't, and even where we live looked the same. The fire never got close enough to actually, you know, burn the trees near us or to to make our area any different. But 
the drive a few days later when we could drive into town. That was certainly eye-opening and you could see the real effects of the fire because all the bushland around the town had been burnt. That was, that was saddening. The fire in Bridgian only made up a small part of the 7.7 million hectares that burned across Queensland that season. We know how that summer turned out. Ring of fire around Sydney is as angry and as frightening as we've seen. Homes have been destroyed and firefighters injured in the Green Wattle Creek blaze south of Sydney. An emergency warning is in place for Swifts Creek, Brookvale and Ensave. Terrifying scale of Australia's bushfire disaster is beginning to emerge. That summer was wild. Like I was saying, I was living in Sydney at the time, and I also flew to central Queensland for some work in November. That whole flight, I was looking out of the window at huge smoke plumes and fires. Sydney was by no means the front line of the Black Summer bushfires, but it was eerie. In early 2020, the whole city was covered in smoke. You couldn't exercise outside, and it was even hard to breathe when you were walking around in it. The smoke in Sydney wasn't coming from that far away, but I was never at risk. The people who were, people who live in the bush, could see this coming, though. Hamish McGowan is a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Queensland, and he'd seen the signs as well. Well, the landscape had been primed for several years beforehand in in terms of we had um, some reasonable growing seasons, uh, so there was a lot of fuel, and then we went into a period where we had two El Ninos effectively end on end. And then we had the Indian Ocean Dipole move into a phase whereby we also got less rainfall in the southeast of Australia here. So those two natural um, factors came into play to reduce rainfall across eastern Australia. Underlying that, of course, we've had this warming associated with anthropogenic loading of the atmosphere with carbon, which everybody knows results in in global warming. So we've had this increasing trend of temperature warming in the background and then superimposed on that this natural variability, which led to these unusually dry conditions. And we had extreme drought, you know, right up eastern Australia here into Queensland. People who are listening to this might remember that, you know, in southeast Queensland here, we had unusual westerly winds, not confined to the usual period which we associate with the ECA, but extending right through into September, October, right through to December. And those winds, of course, had travelled over thousands of kilometres of landmass, were very dry, they were hot, so they were producing meteorological conditions that led to extreme fire weather. So there's a range of processes that came into play there that led to that very unusual event. When the fires started, they were scary enough, but we also saw this phenomenon during the Black Summer bushfires where they started creating their own weather systems. There was a lot of fire thunderstorms associated with the events of that year, and that was mainly because the events were were so large and so intense um, that they led to significant convection in the atmosphere. Uh, And the atmosphere, in particular locations, was also primed uh, to actually initiate and contribute to that pyrocumulonimbus development, which is the word we use to describe fire-triggered thunderstorms. So the fires are creating its own weather at this point. But from my, like, armchair meteorologist point of view, wouldn't a storm be sort of helpful to put it out? Well, sometimes the thunderstorms, of course, do generate their own rain, so the precipitation. Um, But often that might be offset from where the actual fire is on the ground. 
but also the thunderstorm is likely to produce other hazards. So you have lightning potentially starting new fires as a result of that thunderstorm, which has been initiated by the large primary bushfire in the first place. So yes, can create rain, which might enhance or help uh, put the fire out or dampen it, but it also creates other problems, um, which can actually start new fires or enhance fire spread. I do kind of remember bits of this from watching videos of rural fire service at the time. I think there was one where there's a radio call to get out of the way because the fire is changing direction and it goes from this red glow in the background to a fire blowing past them, like the entire flames burning past that truck in what felt like a matter of seconds more than anything. And so those winds would have had a huge impact on just trying to fight the fire and the safety of the people that are trying to work in those environments, right? Yes, yes, definitely, without question. Um, Certainly some of the uh, evidence from large fires or recording of the impact of large fires, for example, in California, you see bulldozers tipped over by fire tornadoes, um, large pickup trucks, fire trucks. Um, So these the associated meteorology that occurs with these extreme bushfires and the the thunderstorms that develop with them can present a whole range of of challenges to those trying to manage the fire. And and our project is to develop the capability to identify these hazards before they actually impact on the ground so we can actually give lead time so that the response is not, should have been five minutes ago, you've got 10 or 15 minutes to respond to get out of the way of the hazard. The other thing we want to do is track where those burning embers are that are lifted into these thunderstorms by these large fires that then travel downwind, still ignited, and land on the dry ground and potentially start new fires through a process of spotting, so fire brands. And that's what we hope to track and we've demonstrated in our pilot work that we can do that with our mobile radar. The project that Hamish is talking about here is actually a University of Queensland project supported by Google that uses artificial intelligence to scour a ton of radar data to give us a look inside a fire thunderstorm. It means we'll get a really good idea of what's floating around in there, and this is why that is useful. So it's a real cocktail of objects inside the cloud. And and what our radar enables us to do is to start to differentiate those and identify speciation. So we can say that part of the cloud has got hailstones in it, this part of the cloud's got liquid raindrops in it, here's ice crystals and here's burning pieces of bark. So that's the capability which our radar has. So we can actually therefore use the AI technology to actually speed up that process of identification and then of course that flows through to a more rapid uh, predictive capability and warning of where these different particles, in particular the burning parts of trees, bark, leaves, twigs and so forth, where they're heading and how quickly. Is this going to make the job of the fireys easier? It's certainly going to reduce the risk uh, both to fire personnel, fire personnel on the ground, uh, as well as communities uh, that are likely to come under impact of fire. It should increase warning times to them in terms of ember attack, Uh, identify potential risk from extreme straight-line winds, um, tornado genesis associated with large bushfires. So can it make the towns and the people in the firing line safer? So we're not making the environment safer directly. Uh, We hopefully will reduce and mitigate the risk to those people should a bushfire occur. But in terms of making the place safer, that, that opens a whole other can of worms. Are we going to start seeing more and more of those kind of fires, do you think? 
a lot of that will depend on on how our climate changes as we move into the future. Uh, some projections are that yes, we may well see see more extreme fires, um, and then it's it's probably fair to deduce that we're likely to see more frequent uh, large. Uh, thunderstorms associated with those fires that present the associated risks that we've spoken about. Um, but a lot of that will depend on, on how our climate changes, both in response to our actions, um, you know, in terms of putting carbon in the atmosphere and driving global warming, but also natural variability in climate, how these natural climate cycles interact um, with each other, but also how they respond to global warming. With climate change particularly, it feels like a real plan for the worst kind of scenario. I don't have a lot of hope that we're going to turn that ship around, which means that in the immediate term, we're going to need to manage the impacts of climate change, one of which is fires. And it sounds like your work is going to be really useful when we start having to address that. Yes, I agree completely. I mean, we're not going to turn around our impact on the atmospheric environment in terms of global warming in five minutes. That's going to take decades, if not centuries. And that assumes that Politically, everybody gets their act together and there is a concerted effort globally to decarbonise and decarbonise the atmosphere. We need to be able to respond now to the consequences of a changing climate, whether it be nat- through natural variability or our actions or a combination of both. We need to build resilience in our abilities to actually respond to the extreme weather events, whether they be tropical cyclones, severe hailstorms or extreme bushfires. We need to develop new capabilities to be able to respond to these events so that we can mitigate the impact that they have on our communities and the environment. How do you feel about, you know, the livability of Perigian and your your future for the area? I guess you come to recognise that if you want to have a lifestyle and a home in, in the bush, which is what so many of us do want, is to have that beautiful connection to nature, there will always be these inherent risks and sadly they're only worsening because of the impacts of climate change. So with that, I think you feel a greater sense of responsibility to do the right thing for the environment and to hope that others are as well um, in order to to mitigate the risks as much as possible. Is it any comfort knowing that you know, there is this work being done to better track and better manage fires and, and try to reduce those risks? Yeah, absolutely. I think any kind of use of of technology um, or any kind of new product or system or solution is, is really valuable, um, especially when it can, you know, help others to to better respond to a situation, then absolutely it is comforting, yes. Does it feel like enough? You know, little measures to better track fires, to, you know, to make it easier and to improve communications. Does that feel like it's enough or does it feel like, you know, you're just sort of turning a garden hose on climate change a bit? No, I I think that every piece counts and every little solution or innovation can assist. Um, Of course, there's the bigger picture of climate change but I don't think that we should neglect the value of, of little innovations as well that can, can help people in these situations. I like this little pieces thing that Gabby's talking about here. I've found thinking about projects like this actually quite comforting. 
I mean, obviously, we need to take action on climate change. That's a non-negotiable. But when we're already wearing the impact as the black summer bushfires show, I'll probably sleep a little easier knowing that people like Hamish have projects like this. Make sure you follow Doom Scroll Remedy in your favourite podcast app so you can join me as we ask questions like, why are we feeling more and more anxious? And how bad is plastic for us? I think we were quite naive and I think we've been quite naive in terms of how we've dealt with plastic and how we've let it contaminate, I guess, every sphere of the environment. Um, You know, from the highest points of the Himalayas to the deep ocean trenches, we find plastic now. And I think that's kind of, we dropped the ball in that we didn't really look at it in terms of how it would contaminate the environment and, and the entire planet. Doomscroll Remedy is a podcast from the University of Queensland. It's produced by Deadset Studios. It's hosted by me, Stephen Stockwell, produced by Grace Pashley. The executive producer is Rachel Fountain. The sound design is by Chrissy Miltiadu, consulting producer Zoe McDonald, and commissioning editor, Greta Uses. 